You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's pray together again. Lord, we thank you for the heart of the one who's led us today. We thank you for the sweet, precious Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for how you have used this praise team, even, dear Lord, in the simple name of Jesus. We pray, dear Lord, now that you just wrap your arms around us and continue to speak to your word and we'll give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Remain standing if you would. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Go over there to uh, Ezra, and you'll come to the second chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, and it's good to see you here today. The title of the message today is Dealing with the Critics, and you and I need to understand that sooner or later in life when God calls us to whatever God calls us to, we're going to have those critical voices. Uh, They're going to come in your life and They're going to come in my life. Uh, I want to start off with a little story. I thought it was kind of interesting. I think maybe it kind of give you a little bit of idea of what the message is about today. It's called a bad hair day. It said a man of an Italian ancestry had always dreamed of visiting Italy and meeting the Pope. He saved his money and finally he had enough money to make the trip. Just before he was about to leave, he went to the barber shop to get a haircut. The barber asked him, how are you going to Italy? The man said, well, I'm flying Italiano Airlines. The barber said, forget it. They've got a terrible reputation and you'll be sorry. Uh, Where are you going to stay? The man responded, well, I'm staying at the Hilton in Rome. The barber groaned and he said, forget it. They've got terrible service. What are you going to do while you're in Rome? The man said, well... Uh, I'm I'm going to see the Pope. (laughs) The barber laughed and said, forget it, you'll never see the Pope. You're a nobody. The Pope only sees important people. You're wasting your time. Several weeks later, the same man went to the barber shop. The barber said, so I bet you never got to Italy. The man replied, well, as a matter of fact, I did. I flew Italiano Airlines, and they were just wonderful to me. And when I got to Rome, I stayed at the Hilton, and they treated me like a king. The barber then asked, what did you do when you got there, when you got to Rome? The man responded, well, I got to see the Pope. I knelt down in front of him, and I even kissed the Pope's ring. Wow, the barber said, you kissed the Pope's ring. What did he say? Well, the Pope looked down at me and he said, son, where did you get that terrible haircut? (laughs) Now, that's kind of a silly little story, but in some ways it reminds us there are always those negative, critical voices. And, And just as they're in your life, They were in the life of this man by the name 
of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all what we call the historical books in the Old Testament, and they all pertain to a certain level of uh, or period of time. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, well, look at the last verse of chapter 1. He said, I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, uh, that's chapter 2, verse 1, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of what? Of heart. I was very much, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it then you, that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, king, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and a cavalry, his cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the reading of your word. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll use it to further your kingdom. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you cleanse our hearts, make our hearts fertile, not only to the messenger, but to those that will receive it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, we, the title of the message was called Living in the Ruins. And Alexander McLaren said this, and I thought this was so powerful. He said, the colony of returning exiles. These were Jews that were being released under Artaxerxes, under the Persian king who had defeated the Babylonians. These are Jews that are being allowed to return to their homeland. But Alexander McLaren said this. He said, the colony of returning exiles seemed to have made little progress prior to Nehemiah's arrival. Discouragement, disillusionment had crippled the works. Now listen to his next statement. These exiles had settled down in the ruins. And I asked you last week, is that you? Is that me? Have we settled down 
in the ruins of our life. Let me expand that. Have we become content to live in the trash heap of failure, of sin, of old habits, of unproductive lives, of no contentment, no sense of purpose, no passion? We've just kind of settled down in the humdrum of everyday life. And because of that, we're getting kicked around by the enemy. Is that you today? Is that me? Are you living your life, and am I living my life outside of Jesus Christ? And I I ended last week by saying this. Have you ever seen those old wrecked cars that are being dragged off to a recycling plant? And you see this old pickup truck, this old flatbed, and you'll see an old rusty, wrecked, beat-up car as it's pulled up on that flatbed, and it's being drugged either to the dump or to be recycled. And I asked you last week, is that your life? Is that where you may be right now? Let me tell you something. If you don't hear anything else, listen closely. Jesus Christ can change all of that. He can recycle your life and give it purpose and give it meaning. Well, last week we asked this question. As we opened this study of Nehemiah, what is your ministry? What is your purpose? What are you passionate about? What kind of... You remember John O'Leary in that book, On Fire, this nine-year-old that was uh, burned over 90% of his body who now speaks to CEOs and executives. He asked this question in the business corporate world. What is your ignition statement? What cranks you up and gets you excited? What's your purpose? More so, what's your burden? What drives you? Let me ask you another question this morning. Listen closely. What does it take for you to quit? Whatever that ministry is, whatever that purpose, whatever that calling is on your life, what, and maybe you've quit already. What does it take for you and I to quit? To walk away? To give up? Could it be a lack of encouragement? Could it be the affirmation of others? Could it mean weariness? Paul said, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for we'll reap if we faint not. Could it just be simply weariness? You're tired, physically exhausted. Could it be loneliness? You feel like you're all by yourself. What would it take, and what does it take for you to quit your call, your ministry, your passion, your purpose? Now, everybody listen closely. Your enemy knows how to answer that question better than you. He studies you 24-7, 365 days out of the year because he has a demonic army that is very concerned about getting you to a position where you quit. Throw in the towel. Last week we looked at Nehemiah. The Israelites had lived in exile. They'd been under the Assyrians. They'd been under the Babylonians. And now the Persians and the Medes were setting them free. And they were going home. But the land had laid dormant. It had at least laid dormant for 70 years. It had been stripped of anything of value. The temple, the walls, everything had been torn down. It had been vandalized. The temple was leveled. The walls were down. And now God was raising up men and women to go back in and to rebuild it. 
Ezra would go back and rebuild the temple. Nehemiah would go back and begin to rebuild the walls. And last week we said this about Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. When Nehemiah the cupbearer to the king looked at his brothers and he said, how is it back in Jerusalem? And they said, it is not good. The people are in distress. And the Bible says that Nehemiah began to weep and he fasted and he prayed because he was broken. He had a burden. Let me ask you something this morning. Is there anything that moves your heart to tears? Is there any purpose, any calling, anything that God has called you to do that in reality, that when you think about it, you start to tear up? I told you last week, Amanda McDonald, who plays the keyboard, I get here, I got up at four something this morning, I was in here praying. When I pray for Amanda, immediately South Sudan comes to mind. I don't talk about South Sudan around Amanda McDonald because if I do, she's made repeated trips back and forth to South Sudan. I know that she is doing what she's doing right now. I know that she's crying. Do you have a burden? Let me give you three things that Nehemiah did with his burden. First of all, Nehemiah's pain, his burden, could not be hidden. Now let me, let me say that again. Nehemiah's pain... His burden, his sense of purpose. You can't hide a burden that God gives you. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He's there before the king. He's the cupbearer, and yet he's sad in the presence of the king. And the king asks him, he says, listen, why are you down? Because see, the cupbearer was always near the king. When they brought wine, cupbearer tested it. If he stood... If he continued to fog a mirror, if he was alive, then the king knew that it was safe. Because see, there were a lot of people that were trying to poison the king, get rid of the king. They wanted to take him out. So the king had to be very careful. So everything that he drank, wine, water, whatever it might be, everything that he tasted was first tested by Nehemiah. There was an enormous amount of trust. But the one thing Nehemiah had never, could never do is he could never be downcast. He couldn't poop on the king's party. He couldn't rain on his parade. When he walked and he stood before the king, he had to put a smile on his face, get his best look, look the best that he could because he could not do anything to bring the king's spirits down because if he did, the king would kill him. But I want you to listen closely. You can't hide a heart that has been burdened by God can't do it I think this is the great danger of the church Jesse it's good to have you and and your sweet wife and little girl with us today they do a lot of mission work they're a product even their marriage of the mission field fascinating story but you can't hide a heart that is burdened by God can't do it And when you look at this passage here and you think about it for a minute, this is the danger, Jesse, of the church. Because if we're not careful, a lot of times we we, we put a mask in front of our face. We put our best foot forward when we get out in the parking lot. We don't share our hurts, our pains, our concerns. We just simply feel like nobody cares. But Nehemiah couldn't hide it. I wrote this down. It's a good principle. A man or woman of God is transparent. 
Do you know what the word blameless means? It doesn't mean sinless. Job was blameless. What it means is you can't bring an accusation against a man that he's not already owned up to. He's just transparent. He's just who he is. And we need that. That's, re- that's refreshing in the church. When you're in that kind of environment where people can be open and honest and transparent and they can reveal their heart and what's on their heart. And Nehemiah's heart was burdened for his people in Jerusalem, the Israelites. And so when the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? Let me ask you something. Does your face reveal your heart? Nehemiah answers the king in verses, as we read on in verse 3, he said, But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Why not? King, why shouldn't I be my homeland, my people, the nation that I'm from? They're in distress. I want you to listen closely. Though he was far removed from the problem, it was on his heart. Indy, where are you from? Nicaragua. You were converted on the mission field, right? By who? Yeah, a missionary from Texas. And she later met Jesse, and they now have a beautiful little girl. But if you talk to her very long, and you talk to Jesse very long, missions, you, if you cut you, you bleed missions. It's on your face. You can't hide what is in your heart because it's on your face. Nehemiah's face revealed what was in his heart. He said to the king, even though I'm far removed, I feel the pain of it. When Sheila and I were being appointed to go to Zimbabwe, we were standing in, in, a, in, in, in a church in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Keith Parks, the president of the, IN, of the Foreign Mission Board at that time, he asked us to speak. Out of 180 missionaries, he asked us to speak. Sheila looked and said, This man's heart is in Zimbabwe and you people need to put his body where his heart is. Where's your heart? I wrote, this reminded me of Moses at Sinai. Moses Moses left Egypt 40 years old. He spent 40 years in Midian. He's now 80 years old. He has a wife named Zipporah. He has Gershom, a son. His father-in-law is named Jethro. He has a comfortable shepherd's life. He lives on a corner lot. He has a 60-inch HDTV. He has the latest He has the latest iPhone. He has a pool. He has a good job. He's made his life comfortable in the suburbs of Midian. He has benefits. He has a three-camel garage. He he goes to Starbucks at the city gate, and he sits there and he talks with the elders. He is somebody, but why does an 80-year-old man climb a mountain and argue with God? Because 40 years ago when he left and he buried an Egyptian under the sand 
and he ran for his life. He never forgot the plight of the people that he left behind. His heart was so burdened, he couldn't get comfortable in the life that he was living. And 80-year-old, he wobbled his butt to the top of Mount Sinai. He stood before the creator of the universe, and he said to God, he said, your people are in distress. And God said, Moses, I know, and I'm sending you. Midian should say he doesn't have nothing. We have as a church built him a two-room dwelling that is about, probably about like this. That's his retirement home. He has nothing. And yet when he stands before you, you will think that he has everything. Why? Because his life is driven by a purpose is yours. You see, we see Nehemiah's pain, but we see, secondly, God's provisions. Look at verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Let's say it. We're God gods. We're God gods. We're God gods. Say it one more time. You just say it to your neighbor. We're God gods. Listen, he will never give you a burden. He'll never give you a call to a mission. He'll never give you an assignment that he doesn't give you everything you need to accomplish it. Never. God has positioned you right now, wherever you are, to accomplish his plan, his calling on your life. Wherever you are right now. Don't wait. He's put you in a school because there's a student there. And you may think, Tanya, you may think, well, you know, I'm just a teacher. Stephanie may think, well, I'm just a teacher. Emily, you may think, well, you know, I'm just a teacher. Well, there was a time in London, England, when a church leader got up one morning and it was bitter cold and snow was on the ground. And he thought to himself, he said, there's no need in going and, and warming the little church because they built a fire in the little uh, in, in the little." Uh, uh, stove there to to warm up this little small room in the 1800s. He said the pastor, in fact he ended up going, the layman ended up going and the reality is the pastor didn't even show up. He thought, well, this is foolish, this is silly, but I'm going to go ahead. And he, he got the fire stoked up and began to warm up in there. He had just a little small handful. In fact, he decided that he would share his testimony. A 15-year-old was coming down the streets of London It was bitter cold. He looked and he saw that stove and he saw that less than a dozen people gathered around that stove and he thought, man, that looks good. He walked in there and he got by that fire and he listened to that old layman begin to pour out the burden of his heart. He began to share his testimony and that 15-year-old who was warming his hands by that fire, God went and germinated. God began to speak into his heart. God began to do something in his heart and he walked out of there and his life was forever affected and changed, and his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A Sunday school teacher in Boston decided to make a visit. He went in, he asked for a particular young man, 19 years old. He walked back where this young man was stocking shoes. He was a shoe salesman. And he looked at that young man, 19-year-old kid, and he began to share Christ with him, a Sunday school teacher. 
And that young man, when he died, it said that he held North America in one hand and the United Kingdom in the other, and he lifted them both toward heaven. His name was D.L. Moody. Where God guides, God provides. Where God gives you a burden, a calling. Look around this room. God's positioned you, every one of you. You are where you are by divine appointment. You have been, listen, God has put you in that business, in that school. He's put you somewhere because he has something for you to do. And you may say, well, I'm a mama. I'm just home. That's right. And you may be raising the greatest evangelist that may sweep the continent of, of Europe with a spiritual awakening. We need college students to come and be a part of this church. You're in a college campus. You need right now to be walking across that campus saying, you want to make a difference in race relations? Come to Southside. Where God guides, He provides. In chapter 2, verse 4, Nehemiah, I love this. He said, the king said to me, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah said, then I prayed to the God of heaven. I call it prayer on the move. Feats on my prayers. I love the story. E.J. Daniels told the story of a little old white elderly woman who would pray. She would pray because there was an old bar. It was just, just, just crime, drunkenness, all kinds of junk. She'd just pray and pray. She had a little old African-American old elderly woman that she loved dearly, a woman of God. She called her one day on a Friday night. She said, listen, they're going to be hopping and juking. She said, would you just come and pray with me? And so that white woman, that black woman, those two senior adults, they knelt down, they prayed, they poured their hearts out. E.J. Daniels tells this story, and I believe it's truth. He said they just poured their heart out. Next day, that little white woman got up, she looked out, and she said, oh, my God. And all that was left was smoldering ashes of that old bar. She called that little old black senior door. She said, you'll never believe what happened. God's answered our prayer. She said, God's answered our prayer. That thing is burned to the ground. She said, but I don't understand. She said, I've been praying about it for years. Said, nothing happened. Said, you come one time. You come one time and you pray with me. And the same within that night, this thing's burned to the ground. That little old sweet black senior adult smiled and said over the phone, I put feet to my prayers, honey. I burned it down. <laughs> Don't you love that? You're not going to like this, but listen. Sometimes prayer is your cop out. Your ability to postpone obedience, to put God off. Imagine Moses on Mount Sinai telling God, let me pray about it. Let me go home and talk to the little lady back at home, Zipporah. God, you know, Gershom is in a good school here. We just hate to get him out of it and move. He's made a comfortable life with his little friends here. I have a hard time with men who don't lead their families. Sarah followed Abraham and Hebrew says she called him Lord. Nehemiah said to the king in verse 5, he said, send me with your blessing so I can rebuild the walls. And look at verse 6. And in verse 6 it says this, 
It pleased the king to send me, so I did what? What did he do? So I set a time. Some of us need to set a time. Some of us need to be busy about the kingdom's work, and some of us need to go to Africa. Some of us need to take a mission trip. Some of us need to go to Costa Rica and Nicaragua, or one of the Central American countries. Some of us need to get off our blessed assurance and do something, and the reality is we need to put it on the calendar. And I love verses 7, 8, and 9. We don't have time to look at it closely, but the bottom line is you see Nehemiah's administrative gifts begin to surface because here is a man who probably spent many restless nights walking through the problem, organizing his thoughts, grappling with the logistics, planning and weighing everything, and thinking to himself, if I get the opportunity, the king looks at me and says, what do you want? I'm going to have an answer. I had three businessmen sitting in my office a while back and they looked at me and any one of these men are powerful. One of them's a powerful businessman in a ministry in Dallas, Texas. They looked at me and said, tell us what you need. Where God guides, He provides. He does. But the reality is, as some of you in this room, you only know why we can't do something. You ever meet people like that? They've got the spiritual gift of negativity. In fact, let me give you a personality test. Do you immediately give the negative? Do you tell why something cannot be done? Are you the devil's advocate? Everybody look this way. The last thing the devil needs is an advocate. He don't need any. He's got an old army down there in hell. He doesn't need an advocate. And you don't need to be the devil's advocate. You see, the reality is that some of us are quick to move our jaws and to immediately become negative and shoot down anybody's idea. I was telling Sheila this. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I read this. I read this, and I had an eye appointment Friday. And I read this little joke story, and I'm sitting there. You know where you put your chin in there and you look in that machine? And I start getting a smile. And then before long, I'm about to bust out laughing, and the eye doctor's looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm thinking about what I'm getting ready to tell you. Because some people just flap their jaws are just negative. They're just critical. There was this man, he was in a conference, he was a speaker. And he's sitting there next to another man in a suit, very polished. And this guy sitting next to him looks at him, he's about to go up and speak. And he said, man, are you all right? And he said, you're never going to believe this, I broke my dentures. And the guy said, well, hang on a minute. He reaches in, he opens up his briefcase and he pulls out a set of dentures and he hands them to the guy. And he said, try these. He said, they're clean. They were in some kind of sterilized bag. He tried them. He said, they're they're too big. And he said, well, hang on a minute. And he took those back, put them back in the bag. He got another pair out. And he said, said, try these on. And the guy said, well, they're just a little tight, a little too, they're just too small. And he said, well, hang on a minute. He pulled back in there and he handed him another one. He put them in. He said, man, that's perfect. 
thank you. Are you a dentist? He said, no, I'm an undertaker. Let me ask you something. I want you to be honest with me. How much time do you really spend? How much time do you really spend in your present ministry over and beyond the average church attender? Now I want you to think about that. Don't count Sunday school. Don't count worship. Don't count preaching. Don't count Wednesday night. In other words, how much time do you spend over and beyond what the average attender would spend in service to the Lord? A leader in this church, I looked at him and I said, it is hard to build a great church when your membership messes four months of Sundays and your leaders two months. He looked at me, he was about to argue the point, and then he thought about it and he dropped his head and he looked sad. Now outside of you that are involved in some kind of ministry where you can't be here, I'm talking to everybody else. Reach over right now and check your neighbor's pew belt. Make sure they're strapped in. Some of you in this room with all your talents and abilities are giving token service to the Lord. You're not sold out. I wrote this church is a great church in many ways with a powerful testimony and yet it cannot achieve its true purpose until you get on board, you sell out, and you begin to tell us not why we can't do something, but how we can do it. A tithe of your time is about 17 hours a week given to the Lord. Well, I don't have that much time. You got that much time to watch TV. Some sit in church about like the family I heard where mom and dad went home. They were sitting around the table. Dad began to criticize and tear apart the sermon. Mom began to gripe about the music and the worship leader and the sound. When all of a sudden their little boy said these words, he said, well, all in all, it was a pretty good show for a dollar. People who don't know, people who don't give service usually do so because they don't understand sacrifice. In verses 7, 8, and 9, he talks about security. He sets out supplies. Nehemiah's pain becomes God's provision. And then finally, look at the critics. There will always be critics. Look at verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Look at verse 19 and 20. They begin to rebuild the walls. Watch what Sanballat and Tobiah say. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? They begin to mock and to make fun. You know, in the Olympics, how many people are watching the Olympics? They that, listen, one of the problems at the Olympics is the booing Brazilians. These are some booing people. I mean, they boo. 
And I thought to myself, you know, there will always be those people in your life and in my life who intimidate, discourage, distract. They just boo every idea you come up with. And you know what most of us do? We just drop it. Is it a burden in your heart? I love Michael Phelps. It's unbelievable. Just unbelievable. And the 200 butterfly. Did you see this 200 meter butterfly this past week? He lost it four years ago by a hundredth of a second uh, to, uh, to this young man named Chad Lacrosse. He is a South African. And though he has all these middles, it is just ate into his soul. So they've been building up this rivalry. Well, here's Michael Phelps. You watch him. He's got his big coat on, got his earbuds in, and he's got that stern look in his face. And he just comes over, and you just see Phelps. He just sits there. This is the way he looked. Just like this. And guess what old Chad LaCrosse is doing right in front of him? He's a swimmer, but he's shadow boxing. And the, and the media, they're just, they're just bleeding this moment for everything they can get. And you just sit there and you wonder what in the world is going on in Michael Phelps' head. But he's focused. He's tuned out everything, including his enemy, his opponent. And whatever's coming through those earbuds, he's tuned into. And then he goes out and he beats her. You will never accomplish anything for the Lord Jesus Christ without a measure of criticism, abuse, persecution, suffering, tribulation. Jesus said to his disciples, Hey guys, before I leave, I want to let you in on something. In the world you'll have tribulation, trials, suffering, difficulty. He was saying to his disciples, you're in enemy territory, guys. Get ready for it. It's coming. They'll always be the critics. I am a Mississippi State graduate, but I like Coach Freeze. My dad and I were having a conversation the other day. Where are my Ole Miss fans? Where's Chris Brewer? John Barnett? They are diehard Ole Miss fans, so they'll love hearing a state graduates say this but Ole Miss is not easily intimidated you can be a state loyal fan but the bottom line is they're not intimidated they go down to Baton Rouge they walk into that arena and they defeat LSU hang with me drummer our drummer is a diehard LSU fan they go to Tuscaloosa they beat the tide even when they turn out to be number one. Tim Tebow, they went down there to the swamp and be Florida. They're not easily intimidated. Sanballat was a Babylonian who was defeated by the Persians. He was a transplant. Nehemiah said, you don't belong here. Tobiah was an Ammonite slave, the product of an incestuous relationship generations later between Lot and his daughter. He said, you don't belong here. Now listen closely, and I'll close in a moment. If you can't hear the boos of hell, 
you are probably no threat to his kingdom. I wrote on my wall, there is no sweeter sound than the sniper fire of Satan. And may I always be in the battle. Let me ask you something. When you got up this morning, how much of hell did you tie up? You remember in, in Acts where the sons of Sceva, they saw all this power floating around. They thought, man, this looks good. We're going to give it a try. We're going to cast out this demon. And boy, these old five brothers, man, they rear back and they're getting ready to cast out this demon. The demon comes out, jumps on all five of them. They run off naked. But do you know what the demons, do you know what hell's demons said to them? They said, Jesus we know. Paul we know. Who are you? Don't you want a reputation in hell? Don't you want to keep hell all upset and on edge? You see, Hollywood would make you, Hollywood would make you think that we just, there's a demon behind every, listen, we're all, we're so scared. Listen, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know what that means? That takes Lucifer, that takes all of his demonic army, all the forces of hell. Jesus, Paul said, listen, the apostle Paul said, Jesus said it over and over again when he would silence the demons. There's enough of Jesus in me to take on all of hell. And when I get up in the morning, I hope the devil goes, oh my goodness, he's up again. Where is he going today? Ron Herod said this, Dr. Ron Herod, who built a great church in New Orleans, he said, I need men and women who will go with me and charge hell with a water pistol. What would it take to cause you to quit, to turn back, to retreat, and to give up? Because whatever the answer to that is, your enemy already knows it. You'll always have critics. You'll always have negative people. They'll always tell you why things can't be done. But don't let them. Don't let them. This past week, you can go ahead and stand. This past week, the Hall of Fame speeches have been going on. and One of them was Brett Farr. It's probably taken over the internet in a lot of ways. Brett Farr, the quarterback, uh, well, really famous for the Green Bay Packers, he said in that speech, he said, I'll always be a Packer. Brett Farr said this, a Mississippi boy. He said as he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame, he said, I overheard my dad talking to three other coaches back when he was in high school. He said, perhaps I had not played up to my ability." He said, but I heard my dad say to these coaches, I can assure you of one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son, and he has it in him. Brett Farr went on to say, I never let my dad, I never let no one know of that conversation that I had overheard it. His mom, I get, his dad is dead. His mom was sitting in that assembly and his mom was sitting there looking at him. He said, nobody ever knew of that conversation. He said, but I thought to myself, that is a pretty good compliment. I never forgot that statement and that comment. 
And then he began to weep and to cry. And he looked up toward the heavens and he said, I want you to know, Dad, I spent the rest of my career trying to redeem myself. Let me tell you this. When it comes to your redeeming yourself and myself, it's impossible. Can't be done. We can't redeem ourselves to the Father. So Big Brother stepped in. Don't you love Big Brothers? Big Brother stepped in. He stood up at the right hand of the Father. And as we say in Zimbabwe, and I'll say it in a few weeks, Nyama Akafeka Mwari Akafeka Munyama, Mwari God Akafeka dressed Munyama in flesh. He stood at the right hand of the Father and he said, Hand me that robe of flesh. And he stepped into the womb of a mother. Never forget that. He stepped into the womb and he was birthed like any other baby. He lived for 30 years basically working alongside of his father and eventually his dad died. And he carried on the stress and the strain of his siblings and his mom running a small carpenter's shop. At 30 years old, he got up one day and he said, it's time. And he walked out of that carpenter's shop and he traveled an area less than half the size of this state, and he changed the entire world. Why? To redeem you and to redeem me. To do what we couldn't do ourselves, what we can never do. He took our sin, our rebellion, Everything that we've ever done wrong, every thought, every deed, every idle word, he took it all, nailed it to the cross, paid the penalty, set us free. Do you know him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray right now if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who right now you're speaking to their heart, You've reached down deep within their soul. You've done something. You've said you need to listen. This is the day. This is the moment. You hear me, I'm speaking to your heart. The Lord Jesus saying deep within the soul of someone in this room, I'm here. I'm here, this is the moment. I'm knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man or woman, boy or girl, hears my voice, they'll open the door. I'll come in and fellowship with them for eternity. And so, Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, convicted of sin, they know they're unworthy but they know that you love them and right now dear Lord I want to say to any person in this room who wants to be saved who wants to settle it who wants to become a Christian today this moment right now 
that Christ Jesus has redeemed them. He has paid the penalty of their sin. And all they've got to do is say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But oh, I thank you that you paid the penalty of my sin. You shed your blood. You died in my place. And right now, I give my life to you. I ask you to come in to forgive me, to be my Lord and my Savior. Lord, there are others in this room that they've allowed the critic, they've allowed the negative voices, they have allowed those people to kill the dream, to kill the vision, to kill the purpose and the passion in their life. They've begun to live among the ruins. They, they've kind of lost sight of ministry. And you're saying the same thing. I'm here. Son, daughter, listen. I'm here. But Lord, the, the voices have been so critical. They've been so hard. I'm tired. I feel lonely. I know. But you let me take that burden. You cast your cares, your anxieties on me. Everything's all right. Don't pay attention to the voices. You just listen to me. You just follow me. And Lord, I pray right now that men and women, without even being asked, would begin to come to this altar. That men and women who have a call on their life, a ministry, a purpose, a plan, a passion, God, they would just re-up for service. They would say, Lord, here I am again. And I recommit and rededicate my life. I want to serve you with everything in my being. If I'm going to lead worship, I'm going to lead it. I'm going to scar up the guitar. I love to look at some of Jeffrey's old guitars. See them beat up, bruised up, because that pick has raked and scarred the surface of that guitar. Because that's passion. I love the young man who preached last night at Hanger Church. He preached with passion. I love, dear Lord, people that get excited about ministry. I love a John Williams. When we talked about, we don't know whether we'll be able to get into Zimbabwe. And I, I said, well, if the planes take off, I'm going. John looked and said, I'm with you. Give us passion. Give us purpose. Help us, dear Lord, to disregard and ignore the sound of the critic and live for Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.